Warning. World Worry Podcast occasionally discusses mature themes and uses colorful language. Welcome to my laboratory, a place of sanctuary for the learned. Thanks. Do you know how many credits I'm going to receive for this part-time lab work? Worry not about these trifling matters, young intern. Science is all that matters within these confines. It's just that I was told that if I did 60 hours of lab work, it counted as a credit for the course. Now, I was hoping to... Silence! And listen, for even the beakers can tell you how to rate, review, and subscribe to World Weary Podcast. Welcome to World Weary Podcast, delving into places few others go, scouring the murky depths for weird stories to ease our weariness, hosted by two women who lost control years ago. I'm the American one, Cassie Payne Walker. And I'm the British one, Violet Starr. World weary meter reading. Where are you at? Oh, um, like frost ghost. Frost ghost. Yeah, frost ghost. Like a what are you haunting? Ghost. Um, a cold, barren wasteland of frozen ground. When you said frost ghost, I didn't even think of it in a house. I did think of a barren wasteland. Yeah. So you (laughs) with just two words, you've said you know. Yeah. That. That's the vibe. It's because of this cold snap we've had, and obviously I'm working outside. I've just really got in touch with. Oh my gosh, you're outside all day, <laughs> trying to like mattock like solid frozen ground. You know, yeah, frost ghost. That's that's the vibe. Oh gosh, those team those tea breaks must be something else out there oh my god i have been sat in my car at break time i turn on the engine so i can get the heater and my brakes are like half an hour long and obviously it takes like basically 25 minutes for even like a little bit of noticeable warmth to come out of the car heater so i'm there with like the, the heater fans on max like shivering in my car and i've got a really good thermal flask but there's only, you know, there's only so much tea I can drink. Even it's decaffeinated tea. They would think you were in I the take. Arctic or something. No, modern <laughs> yeah. British archaeology folks. Yeah, not even. Like, they will. They're not going to pay for a space heater. I'm wearing multiple layers of gloves on top of each other, and like three pairs of socks, and like super expensive, uh, like welly boots. So, yeah, it's. It's a thing, but I'm coping with it. And I kind of like it. In some ways, it's better than, you know, like when it's rainy. Yeah. When it's just like frozen and icy. It's, it's a fun environment to be in. But How's it is the hard rain work. treating you? Um, Rain, well, well, I haven't had rain for a few weeks, okay. really, because it's been so, like, icy. But we'll, I'm expecting... We'll check in tomorrow. I was going to say, we've got a, I'm about to go and work in a week of, like, torrential downpour. Like, all of the weather forecasts, like, 100% rain all day, every day. So I'm going to be, like, soaked through just in time for Christmas. All right. So, I mean, for me, uh, things are going all right. I'm adjusting to my new job. It's, it's, I'm tentatively looking around. All, I'm, I'm a tentative uh you know sea creature 
exploring the mm. depths of this new arena. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to get right into it. Violet, I want to talk to you about yellow fever. Ooh. What was our, what was the theme of today? A bad science. There I we think go. you right. Okay. <laughs> so yellow fever is a viral disease. Usually it doesn't Ooh. last very long. You know, things, it's a, it's a wham, bam. See you later. Uh, in about 15% of people, this is all from Wikipedia. Uh, within a day of improving, the fever comes back. You get abdominal pains. Your liver gets fucked up and your eyes and skin start to go yellow. Um, and then you can risk bleeding and kidney problems. And um, yeah, a lot of people fucking die. You know, they 12% of people who have symptoms go get serious illness. Jaundice. That's when the eyes go yellow, I think. Bleeding shock, organ failure, and sometimes death. Um, among the 15% who develop the severe illness, the fatality rate is 20 to 60%. So it's pretty pretty Shit. messed up. That's yellow fever. Pretty high. And before we knew what we were doing with it, it was it was scary. You know, it seemed to come out of nowhere, you know. Starts out like common flu, you get a headache, fever, muscle, you start vomiting. But then you you know, fifteen percent of those people having those cold symptoms, how many things start with cold symptoms? It's so crazy. A lot. And then you never know what's coming next. It's like you start mm. with cold symptoms. Anytime you get a fever, you should be worried. Mm. <laughs> and then fifteen percent of those, they start to have a severe form of the disease. They start getting these things. Um and up to half of those who develop this severe disease die. So it's it's pretty crazy. So around 1000 BC, so they they reckon it developed or originated in Africa, passing back and forth between areas um because of, you know, spoiler alert mosquitoes and stuff. And um they said the virus circulated in monkeys and mosquitoes in the rainforests of Af Africa. It probably quote it probably infected people as well, but not in large populations because people lived in small villages at the time. So there would be an outbreak and maybe a village would go. But then, you know, after that, after it passes through that village, they're so remote that everything's fine. So maybe yeah, a little bit with the village, you know, exactly, you know, and mm. it would sweep through. It'd be very tragic. And then that would be that for a while. But then, you know, the mosquitoes would find somebody else. You know, it's not like they're just like it's it's crazy amounts. But yeah, every so often, you know, they're transferring blood between, you know, all sorts mm. and anything they can. So the 1600s, quote, the shipping industry and global commerce is expanding. Mosquitoes are actually getting hitching rides on barges and sailing vessels. <laughs> <laughs> the, the way this is written, it's like they're like, there's a mosquito in a suit. He's like, bon voyage, baby. I'll yeah. be back when I see you. And, Packing um, like a mini champagne bottle on the side <laughs> of the boat. But in reality, they're probably in like some scum water at the bottom of the ship, uh, yeah. in larva, um, in the kegs and stuff. And of course, slaves infected with yellow fever were bitten by mosquitoes, which then would bite uninfected people um, all over. And that's how the virus supposedly gets, you know, really introduced to the Americas. But for a long time, people didn't know all this, Violet. Mm. And there were going to be some oopsie moments in the scientific journey of how and why. 
That's what I'm talking about today. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in the 1800s, this is all from a, a great, uh, some great articles, which we'll link um, to the NPR article about the timeline and history of Yellow Fever. Uh, so, people thought it was transmitted by contact with infected patients. And so the way, if you think that's the case, the way you're going to handle it is different, right? You're going to do all the things we're doing right now for, you know, um, and you're not going to be able to come up with a strategy that works to contain the infection and spread. So thousands of people were dying every year in New Orleans. Um, it was a major port for the slave trade in a city with a climate for uh, hospitable for this type of mosquito from Africa. And so 26,000 people in New Orleans contracted yellow fever um, between 1839 and 1860. And this is when they would, and, and the side note, I mean, we've spoken about the yellow fever uh, outbreak in New Orleans, haven't we? A long time ago or at yeah, least I, I felt like you touched on it in a story yeah, with yeah with um communal graves and things like that when mm. they couldn't bury them in the ground because it's too swampy so they had all these um, methods of combating that so but this was that time period this is what was causing it it was this yellow fever and it was because it was so misunderstood they didn't know how to deal with it so it's in everybody's interest to stop this shit right so by the end of the 19th century during the Spanish-American War, uh, a thousand soldiers or less died in battle, but it was more than five thousand that just died of disease, and a lot of those were yellow fever, um, according to the U.S. Army Yellow Fever Commission. And then in the 1900s, again, this is from NPR.org, uh, the Yellow Fever Commission was formed by the U.S. military in response to these wartime deaths. So basically, they're coming up with a way to figure out exactly what is causing this. Um, Dr. William, I'm going to butcher this name, sorry, Gorhas, uh, who had worked on mosquito or Gorgas, mosquito eradication in Cuba, he convinced President Theodore Roosevelt to grant funding to help eradicate yellow fever in Panama. So he, along with 4,000 other workers in what he called his mosquito brigade, because ding, 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 he thought it was mosquitoes. He noticed some patterns and he was like, hmm. Uh, so when the Panama Canal was being built, 85% of the canal workers had been hospitalized with malaria or yellow fever. And workers were so terrified that they just didn't even want to go there. At the first sign of yellow fever, people would flee. So, and tens of thousands of workers were dying. And um, so him and Dr. Finley suspected it was mosquito bites. So to prove it, 30 men, including Spanish immigrants, soldiers, two civilians, volunteered to be deliberately infected with mosquito bites. Ooh. All right. The commission started mosquito control programs after this experiment using sanitation, fumigation with insecticides and reduction in standing water areas where these mosquitoes breed. And then the number of yellow fever cases started to drop dramatically. So they figured it sort of out. Um, but, 
you know, who's going to take them serious? No. <laughs> um, but before all that fun stuff, so this guy calls the Mosquito Brigade and they basically go after mosquito eggs. They're fumigating private homes. They're spraying any sanding water with oil to stop breeding. And it cuts yellow fevers in half. Um, and there were only seven new cases after that. And the last victim died of yellow fever during the canal stuff in November 11, 1906. So they managed to eradicate it there. Wow, that's, you know, good job. But before all that, that heroic work, there was a lot of people trying to figure it out on their own violet. <laughs> okay. What what's wrong? Is it is it the tone of my voice? <laughs> yes. That's shifted slightly. Um born and raised in Salem, New Jersey, our man Firth, he um studied at the University of Pennsylvania ATON. So this is a Stubbins Firth. His first experiment a small sized dog was confined in a room and fed upon bread soaked in black vomit. At the expiration what? of three days, he became so <laughs> fond of what, it, of fond of it that he would eat the ejected matter without bread. It was therefore discontinued. What? So, just hold that one in Black the back of your vomit. mind. Don't worry about it. Um, in in 1793, an epidemic of yellow. This is from Science Horrors. Um, fever hit the city of Philadelphia. Four thousand people in a town of fifty thousand died during the course of of the epidemic. And the panic was worsened by the fact that at the time, nobody really understood how yellow fever worked. They didn't really get it. Um, they suggested the most popular theory at the time was that it was suggested that it was spread by bad air, by miasma. Physician Benjamin Rush also, um, that was their main theory, was that it was just bad air, breathing, right? Mm -hmm. Um but trainee Dr. Stubbins Firth was convinced that it was not contagious and he wanted to prove it with his experiments. Uh, from the 1906 book Walter Reed and Yellow Fever by Howard A. Kelly, Firth made numerous attempts to inoculate himself by depositing fresh black vomit and blood obtained from patients in the early stages of the disease oh, into... God incisions made in his arms and legs oh that can't end well so hold on <laughs> the black vomit is coming from people from their fucked up the organs fever. and stuff oh my are... god besides numerous other experiments he inserted four drops of such serum into an incision in his leg one no. must read this treatise in order to appreciate fully the term the determination of the investigator who administered black vomit to animals Injected it into his own circulation and deposited it in his own tissues. He inhaled oh. the fumes of six ounces of this material, which he heated over a sand bath in a small room. The residue he made into pills and swallowed. Failing in was this, he a, he... was he a single man by <laughs> any chance? <laughs> I don't think I could deal with this. Failing I couldn't in this, be, be Mrs. Black Vomit inhaler. He further tried to inoculate himself with blood serum, saliva, perspiration, bile, and urine. And finally concluded that yellow fever, fever was neither infectious nor contagious. 
which is the truth. He mm-hmm. and he he proved it with all those. Well, great job, but like still, <laughs> great job, but I took half an ounce of the black vomit immediately after it was ejected from a patient, oh. and diluting it with an ounce and a half of water, swallowed it. No, the taste like- was. Very slightly acid, as I felt no mental anxiety or uneasiness. I could attend particularly to my sensations. It, oh, it neither produced... Yeah? It's What's wrong? Like warm, you, I'm reading you a scientific statement. Fresh from the patient, like, warm, <laughs> like, is... I don't know which is worse, like, old, stale sick that's, like, started to, like, dry up a bit. Or, like, fresh, warm, straight-from-the-body vomit. Like, there's no... Neither choice is okay. Usually you like your things fresh, but I feel like maybe some... Stale? Old sick? That's been hanging around for a bit in a bucket? God, Violet. (laughs) It neither produced nausea or pain. My pulse, which was beating 76 in a minute, moderately strong and full, was not altered in either force or frequency. In fine, no more effect was produced than if I had taken water alone. So he's a badass. He is a badass. <laughs> um, yellow oh. fever is transmitted via mosquitoes, of course, and it's not directly contagious person to person. You can't get it from bad air. You can't get it from all those things. You can't get it from cutting and inserting it. You can't get it from all those things he tried. Um, his belief that the fever arose from the stress of the summer months, however, was wrong. So he was like, so it's stress. Um, and it would not be until 1881, of course, you know, that the sci- scientist Carlos Finley that we spoke of correctly guessed the mosquito connection and set out to do all those amazing things to cure it. Yeah. And I guess he was just it. like, he was like thinking of, along the right lines of, I guess, like the mosquito Process of population increases in the summer, right? So like maybe he was seeing more people getting it in the summer, but then to jump to stress. <laughs> in the summer rather than looking at like what other things are like increasing in the summer like are there more bugs around you know he was he was a few steps away all right well that's that's my story i mean intriguing i think we love a world weary story about someone ingesting and injecting people's black vomit into their body mm. <laughs> I do what oh, I can. Yeah. Um, okay, so my bad science themed story is like a bit more modern. I've got a British story. It's kind of a famous one. I think a lot of listeners might have heard of this one. Um, it's from the 1980s and it brings together time travel and uh, like a poltergeisty style haunting and a 1980s BBC microcomputer. Okay. So this is the story, or the case even, of the Doddleston messages. I love love the fact that it's Doddleston right. messages. It couldn't be have a more stupid British name. <laughs> the Doddleston messages. It really sounds like a place that a wizard Fuzzbury oh, like, yes. is from yes. Doddleston. He's got a cousin there that he visits. <laughs> For sure. 
So it's 1985 and a school teacher called Ken Webster and his girlfriend Debbie move into a derelict 18th century cottage in the village of Doddleston in Cheshire. It's, I mean, it's kind of similar to my current situation. They're, they're renovating this rundown old cottage, trying to make it, you know, nice and add some value to it. And the couple, um, initially when they move in, they've also got a friend there helping, uh, helping them out with doing up the house. Um, and within the first weeks of moving into the cottage, all three of them experience a series of spooky incidents, starting with the appearance of six-toed footprints in the dust, which appeared to walk up the walls between the bathroom and the kitchen. Assuming this was like a weird prank that was maybe left by the previous owners, maybe some kids that had lived in the house, um, and that, you know, these guys just hadn't noticed it until then. Um, So Nick, the friend, paints over the footprints. Of course only for them to reappear the next day on top of the new fresh paint. The footprints reappear. So, a little bit weird. The um, They see strange shadows in the house. They feel cold gusts of wind when all the doors and windows are shut. They can't shake the feeling of a kind of presence or invisible entity watching them in their new home. And they also discover kind of poltergeisty things like tins of cat food that had been moved around the house and stacked in little pyramids, you know, just just standard classic ghosty haunting stuff, you know. Uh, so Nick, Nick witnesses some of that and then he, he leaves Ken and Debbie to it. Ken... It's when Ken borrows a BBC microcomputer from the school that he worked at that the ghost story takes an unexpected twist. So the BBC microcomputer was quite a bit before my time. I feel this is something that Morgan may remember. He probably, you know, I know he had a computer back in the day. He'll have something to say about a microcomputer, I reckon. Um, So these BBC microcomputers were developed in the early 80s and they were produced by the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corp, um, and Acorn Computers for this thing called the BBC Computer Literacy Project, which was this push in the 80s to teach people, especially school children and students, to use computers. They wanted the population of, of the UK to become, you know, um, computer literate. And they wanted people to learn computer programming and children to kind of get trained up and interested in this at an early age. And so they developed this microcomputer that was rugged. It had very durable design and it was maybe a little bit more affordable than other microcomputers that were available at the time so that schools could obtain them, um, you know, in some quantity. So Ken somehow manages to blag one of these microcomputers. He borrows it from the school that he works at and he brings it back to his haunted cottage and he sets it up. And suddenly weird typed messages 
start appearing on the computer monitor and Ken and Debbie swear that they are not writing these messages and they cannot figure out how the messages are appearing. Um, The computer isn't connected to any kind of network. There's no internet or anything like that. Obviously, this is... Yeah, this is a, a like several, certainly several years before the World Wide Web, all of that. Yeah, it's in a time when that just doesn't happen because you'd have to program the computer. It would be, it wouldn't be AI. It would be like really made up responses that didn't make any sense. That would be so limited, like an old RPG or something. Mm, yeah. So it was just like, yeah, impossible, right? Yeah, exactly. This was just that era of computers where you're literally just typing like code you know yeah you have to type it, code just to even play your game you have to type in the code yeah. to play it really get early it right. an- <laughs> exactly ancient computers right so um the only thing that they can do is kind of print out and make notes of the strange messages that are appearing on the computer the first message that they get is a very weird sinister sounding poem actually And it it goes as follows. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. So that's the first weird message that appears on the BBC microcomputer in Ken's cottage. I know. Very odd. Kind of like weird, slightly, um, yeah, slightly like cryptic, sinister-ish poem. Only a few days after this first poem more messages began to appear on the computer monitor. But now the messages are very much written in a kind of archaic, you know, oldy-woldy English. And the writer of these messages seems to be observing Ken and Debbie, directly addressing them and accusing them of stealing his house in the messages. Um, So... One of the messages is, I write on behalf of many. What strange words you speak. You are a good man who has a fanciful woman, and you who dwell in my home with lights which the devil makes. It was a great crime to have bribed my house. And this message was followed by the initials LW. So, very... They got a crazy ghost? Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems like—a crazy ghost that's using the the computer. Yeah, for real, ghost in the machine. So for the next year and a half, so this is through 1985 and into 1986, Ken and Debbie claim that the strange messages uh, continue to appear on the computer on a regular basis. They're written in this archaic English with old-fashioned spellings and vocabulary from really the 16th and 17th century, this kind of like late medieval English. And 
also using um, like a particular dialect from the Cheshire, Gloucestershire region as well. So it's very yeah archaic, like how someone would have spoken if they were from the 16th, 17th century in that area. And of course, just like you, Ken couldn't help but wonder whether a ghost, uh, perhaps the ghost of a former resident of the cottage or something, was trying to communicate with him through the computer. Uh, we've all heard of things like, you know, the kind of automatic writing ghost stories where ghosts like possess people or spirits possess people and you write out a message on pen and paper from the ghost. Um, it's sort of like a version of that, but where the ghost is like typing away at this early 1980s computer, maybe. So Ken is intrigued and he decides to write back via the haunted microcomputer to see if he could get some answers or maybe discover the identity of the writer. And so Ken types a series of questions into the computer, asking things like where the writer is from, um, who is the reigning monarch, what college did you go to, just all kinds of questions. And he quickly receives responses. Be, okay, prepare yourself. So the ghostly writer initially tells Ken that his name is uh, Lucas, Lucas Wayman, and that he had lived not in the cottage, but in a house on the site of Ken's cottage, a house that predates Ken's cottage, in the 16th century, specifically during uh, Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine Parr, so sometime between uh, 1543 and 1547. And Lucas said, you know, he'd been married with with a son, but that both his wife and his child had died of the plague in 1517. Um, He revealed that he had studied at college in Oxford, so he was obviously, you know, someone of a bit of status and and able to write. He also revealed information that demonstrated that Lucas could see what Ken and Debbie were getting up to in the cottage. Uh, He would write things, um, he, he would write that so, like, Ken had left, like, photos and stuff around the computer or, like, ornaments and things. And uh, one of them was, like, a picture of a Jaguar car. And Lucas wrote, you know, I have found your picture of the cart, but it is a it is a crude thing, for without the horse it will not travel far. Um, and he would also write <laughs> things that he was burning them burning them from beyond (laughs) yeah for real that's the english way (laughs) it won't get get you far that that cart without a horse um he wrote that he was mystified by the box of lights which ken assumed was the the microcomputer so they felt that lucas was somehow able to like perceive what was going on in the 1980s in the present in the cottage. Over time, the correspondence between Ken and Lucas actually becomes a bit more familiar and they develop a sort of friendship almost. Um, 
rather than, you know, accusing Ken of stealing his house, Lucas starts to ask Ken questions about what the future is like. Like, what's it like? You know, you're he, there, there's an understanding that one of them is in the past and one of them is in the future, uh, which is pretty weird. Uh, and the messages get even weirder than that. At one point, Lucas stops writing and instead a new writer begins communicating with Ken on the computer. Uh, a person who only calls themselves um, a friend of Lucas and reveals that Lucas has actually been arrested by the local sheriff due to his communications with the box of lights in his house that he'd been using to communicate with Ken. So essentially we're building a picture here that a man in the 16th century living in a house on the site of Ken's 18th century cottage has a box of lights, possibly a computer, that he is using to communicate with Ken in the future, in the 1980s. If you can... <laughs> if you can grapple with that. Messages... Okay. Yeah, and, and so Lucas, this 16th century person, has basically been arrested and it's hinted at by this friend that has got onto the 16th century computer that that's the reason Lucas was arrested was the box of lights like the sheriff is not cool with this this witchcraft that's going on uh oh, eventually wow. though this uh, is taking a turn it, i know right there's a lot of drama messages from lucas do restart um lucas writes to ken and says that he actually went to trial but has been released under house arrest in order to keep the box of lights working because it seems that that Lucas is, like, the only person who really knows how to use the box of lights and his anonymous friend. He tells Ken that, in addition to Ken, he has also been communicating with a friend from the year 2109. And that this person from 2109 had originally brought him the box of lights. So, essentially, he's saying that a guy from, like, in the future future has maybe travelled back in time and given a man in the 16th century a computer. And that this man in the 16th century is communicating with Ken in the 80s and a man who gave him the computer who's from 2109. Okay, it, so we've got <laughs> it, it would be accurate that, like, this kind of mess would happen you know it's <laughs> it like would. oh we can all, all we're connecting to the 80s not the 2000s for christ's sake <laughs> yeah so we're working on like three temporal planes now you know three lines into different different parts of time um lucas also reveals that he had been under the impression that ken was also from 2109 um until ken told him that he's actually living in 1985. Hmm. So there was a bit of confusion between uh, between Lucas and Ken about who was from which timeline. So Ken, in the 80s, decides to see if he can communicate with this supposed friend from 2109 
who gave Lucas in the 16th century a computer. And so Ken just writes a single line into his BBC microcomputer. He just writes 2109 for 2109, and he immediately receives a reply. The message reads, Try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he is, is. Uh. Uh-huh, yeah. A weird cryptic message um, in which God is still a he in 2109. Uh, the, the friend from 2109 would also go on to imply that both Ken and Lucas uh, were part of an experiment that people in the year 2109 are conducting with time travel. Lucas then reveals that Lucas is actually a pseudonym. Uh, Lucas is the one from the 16th century. (laughs) And that his real name is Thomas Harden. This revelation appears to anger 2109, who writes a message to Ken, which says that he's kind of annoyed that Lucas has revealed his true identity because it messes up 2109's time travel experiment somehow. So Ken and Thomas, uh, a.k.a. Lucas, then begin to suspect that uh, the friend from 2109 is, like, tampering with their messages that they're sending to each other and, like, changing the messages Mm. or, like, deleting messages. And so they develop a system where Ken starts leaving out paper and charcoal in his cottage in the present... Um, and that Lucas is somehow able to use this charcoal and paper in the 16th century to write handwritten messages to Ken. Eventually, communications from Thomas, a.k.a. Lucas, fizzle out towards the end of 1986. In his last messages to Ken, he says that he's being forced from his land, but that he would leave behind a book for his friends in the future to discover. Oh, Ken, mm-hmm, yeah. Ken and Debbie, don't forget about girlfriend Debbie, who's sort of been involved and, and witnessed to all of this, um, claims that the friend from 2109 also did leave a few more cryptic messages on the BBC Micro, including that Thomas's book would be discovered at some point in the future. So... After the messages with Thomas and the person from 2109 end, Ken and Debbie um, invite paranormal investigators to the cottage on at least three occasions, uh, but they say that no further paranormal activity was witnessed. Um, you know, there was no sort of evidence for anything. And we don't really hear much more about Ken and Debbie until 89 when the story of the Doddleston messages gains both national and international attention because Ken publishes a book about his experience 
titled The Vertical Plane, The Mystery of the Doddleston Messages, A Bizarre Record of Communication Through Time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I have my thoughts, okay, from quite early on about how I feel, <laughs> what side <laughs> of the, the sceptical fence I'm on with this story. Um, and, you know, whilst plenty of people were very sceptical and believe that the messages are just a simple hoax devised by Ken. Many readers of the book were intrigued by the concept of, you know, a ghost in the machine, a haunted computer, or even a computer being used as a conduit to communicate not only with people uh, several hundred years in the past, but also in the future, this sort of time travel computer. And some people have even wondered if this is an example of AI time traveling from the future and hacking into old computers in the past and giving people 16th century computers, perhaps. Um, Even though in my mind, this story is probably a hoax, it is like a great example of, uh, you know, new technology clashing with the supernatural, which we all love. In the 90s, this British, like, ghost TV program, you know, one of those mystery programs, um, they cover the case of the Doddleston messages, and they conclude that archival research proves that a vicar by the name of Thomas Harden, the same name that the uh, 16th century computer guy wrote, um, had actually existed around 1546, so the right time period, in that local area, and that expert linguists had looked, reviewed the messages um, from Ken's computer, and said that, you know, the dialect and vocabulary used in Thomas's messages was authentic to the time period. Now, I'm not saying that that's something that Ken couldn't have figured out, you know, he's a school teacher, right? You know, we all can look in the records and find names of people that lived somewhere. <laughs> we can do history research, it's not that hard. Um, but yeah, to for the BBC programme, that was like a big deal that they were able to prove it, and a lot of people think that that gives it some credibility. Uh, Unless someone's keeping it a secret, the book that Thomas and the friend from 2109 promised would be discovered in the future has yet to surface. So yeah, that's the weird case of the Doddleston messages and a like time travel slash haunted early 1980s microcomputer. Hopefully it's discovered soon. That'd be exciting. I know. What do you think about that one? Like... Do you feel like know. AI could be responsible from the future? <laughs> it seemed a little creepy, the the entire thing. And yeah, I think so, yeah. maybe. I think for the 80s, it was quite an original plot to a story. You it's know? very like, good. It's very intriguing. They should make a movie yeah. about it. 100%. Well, the, apparently the book that Ken wrote, the the vertical plane, um, although lots of people are like, hey, I'm like super skeptical and I... I think this probably was a hoax. They say it's actually a really compelling, brilliantly written book. Like, maybe he's just a great fiction writer. Um, So if anyone's interested, check it out. It's also got, like, the funkiest, like, 80s 
book cover of this like weird Shakespearean looking dude like floating over a fucking cottage. It's um it's great. And I'll share a link uh on our website to a blog written by a researcher called Nick Points, which goes into like way way more detail you can read lots of the messages that ken supposedly received like i only included like a few of the important ones but there were literally like loads like hundreds um and he goes into way way more detail there's a lot more that that went on and also a recent article on howstuffworks.com by alison troutner that kind of sums this up um in a bit more detail so yeah that's the doddleston messages guys very good. Well, um, that concludes another week of world weariness. Uh, make sure you go to worldwearypodcast.com for all the things that you can get all our socials, um, all the links and everything and the diary and all that. Uh, thank you to our Patreon people, uh, Diamond Grendel and everybody, uh, that's ever thrown some shit that way. Thank you very much. Um, what else? What am I missing? Uh, We're gonna do a tarot. Yeah, that'll do. Tarot time. I don't think I'm missing much. Let's see. Have a sip of coffee. Da da. Let's hope it's a good one. Eight of Pentacles. That's sort of a good one. Mm. Sort of uh, the craftsperson looking at, you know, the finely crafted uh, work that they've done, admiring it, and um, I guess prepping for the next stage. It's a, it's a magical moment. Oh, I like Is there a, anything else? I like a, yeah, like a developing one's skills yeah. card and mastery and stuff. That's, that's it's when useful. you're actually able to be super proud of what you've thrown out there. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm definitely it's going through like it. a skills development moment in my life, you know, where I'm just like, fuck it, I'm like literally trying to like learn like ten different new things all at once. So I really need uh need that eight of pentacles encouragement to master the skills, you know, and practice stuff. That's good. Well that's a good one to leave it on. Yeah. Not too bad. And uh yeah, I guess we'll we'll see y'all next time for another world weary episode. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>